0: You better listen, my brother. Cause if you do, you can hear. There are voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean. They're crying across the land. And they will until we all come to understand. None of us are free. None of us are free.
1: All right, welcome everybody to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly Wednesday live stream where we interview labor leaders about current labor issues. My name is Jacob Morrison. I have a union talk radio show here in Alabama on 92.5 WVNN. You can also find us on YouTube and Facebook, all the social media, everything like that at the Valley Labor Report where uh, my co-host and I uh, talk to Alabamians about labor issues. My co-host today is Judy Ansel. Judy?
2: Hi, Jacob, and hi, everybody. I um, am in Kansas City, where I produce the Heartland Labor Forum, a labor radio show that's been on the air going on 32 years. Uh, We started April Fool's Day, 1989. I don't know who the fools were, but I'm happy to be here. And we are supported by many of the local unions in Kansas City.
1: Judy, thanks so much for helping me with this. And so, uh, what what Judy and I decided to talk about was NAFTA and the USMCA. Uh, in July of 2020, the U.S. Mexico Canada Agreement, or USMCA, was put into force, ostensibly as a kept promise, right, from President Trump's 2016 campaign. Uh, the USMCA is a renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was shepherded by Bill Clinton in the 90s. Uh, but since The USMCA's passage, there has been just very, very little discussion of it. Uh, And, you know, like many things in the Trump era, enormous news stories are totally swept away by the tide of daily controversies and even bigger stories. So we wanted to take a step away from the hustle and bustle of kind of the the 24-hour news cycle and revisit this because it's a really important topic and it's going to affect all of our lives especially those of us with more manufacturing t- in the manufacturing sector this is going to be affecting us for years to come so we wanted to uh you know revisit what the reno- renegotiation of one of the most consequential trade deals in American history and hopefully we want to revisit that with the clarity that hindsight brings. Um, we're going to be reviewing things that we knew then already, and hopefully, we're going to learn some more uh, that that we can only know after after it was passed, you know, learn what its implementation has been like. Our first two guests are Lori Wallach, uh, director of Global Trade Watch, which is a division of Public Citizen. Uh, She's gonna be helping us get a better understanding of the the history of NAFTA and the USMCA and a broad overview of what those two trade deals did. And then we're gonna be talking to Eric Gottwald. He is the trade specialist with the AFL-CIO. He's gonna be digging more into some some of the labor aspects. Um, And so in the second half, Judy, we're going to be talking uh, more to Eric and also with your other guests about the agreement from the perspective of folks in Mexico and Canada. So Judy, talk to us about those folks.
2: Okay. And yes, in the second half, we're going to be talking about NAFTA as a North American agreement and how it has brought us together in one common market uh, in North America. Our guests are going to be Alejandro Villamar, who is from the Mexican Action Network on free trade and a longtime activist in Mexico uh, for fair trade rather than free trade. And then we're going to be talking to Rick Arnold from Common Frontiers in Canada, who also has been a longtime activist looking for a much better deal for the peoples of our country and for the working, for the working people in, in particular. So um, they're going to be on in the second half of the show.
1: All right. Thank you, Judy. So, Lori, we're going to go to you first. And I was talking to my co-host about this uh, yesterday evening as I was driving home, and, and, you know, I was telling, like, I just... trade deals, international stuff, that's really a blind spot for me. I'm a unionist, I have these socialist sympathies, and I, you know, so I, I have an ideological kind of axe to grind, but as far as getting into the nitty-gritty, I feel very kind of out of my depth when I'm talking about this kind of stuff, and uh, I've heard some of your interviews, you uh, you seem to present things, Pretty pretty well. So, if you could, for folks like me, you know, for for the dummies out there that don't really know much, can you tell us about the um, the trade environment before NAFTA and what like? Because I I'm still not totally sure that I understand exactly what mechanically about NAFTA enabled so many jobs to be shipped overseas. And uh, so so talk about you know. What, what it was like before NAFTA, what NAFTA changed, and and then we can get up to the USMCA uh, and, and talk about what the USMCA changed from NAFTA. So, you know, just condense half a century of American history into like three minutes and we're going to be good to go. <laughs>
3: well, thank you for inviting me. The dirty little secret of NAFTA and the agreements from, you know, the 1990s on is... They're not mainly about trade. The idea of calling them a trade agreement was like a branding stunt by the multinational corporations and governments that were in cahoots. The better way to kind of think about them is some kind of delivery mechanism for a whole smorgasbord of corporate rights and protections and then serving up handcuffs on governments at the federal, state, and local level with respect to all kinds of stuff behind the borders that has nothing to do with trade. From things like food safety inspections, the way states decide to spend their state procurement money. You know, are they gonna spend it locally? Are they gonna have prevailing wage laws and other conditions? Things like food safety standards. And then, you know, some of the corporate rights were things that are actually antithetical to so-called free trade. So, you know, classic monopoly protections for big pharma to be able to charge whatever the hell they wanted on medicines and undermine access. So that whole stew of sort of corporate protectionism and limits on government regulation, kind of like a whole corporate smorgasbord of what a lot of people at that point were calling the neoliberal agenda or the Washington consensus, this one size fits all largely not trade policies, but there was some trade stuff in there that made the world happier, more profitable for big companies and really stuck it to workers and consumers in all the countries involved. So just for instance, you asked what the hell was the thing that led to all of that offshoring? Well, the NAFTA includes investor protections that literally made it cheaper and and a lot less risky for US corporations to offshore their production. And knowing that labor rights in Mexico were suppressed with the government in cahoots with basically protection unions, a lot of those companies thought, wow, a lot of very hardworking, smart people just across the border who we can pay a pittance. And with these investor rights, there's no risk that might be typically associated with offshoring production to a developing country. Or, for instance, there are rules in NAFTA that were set up so that some of the kind of regulations that you might put in place to make things better for people in the host country for all that new investment, those were basically protections that investors, as foreign investors, had special NAFTA, what are called investor state rights, to attack in secret tribunals and get cash out of us taxpayers. If a government dares to put into place a protection for consumers or workers or the environment. So that toxic brew got basically including a lot of things that you could not get through the legislatures of these countries under normal procedures, gets all rolled together and branded free trade agreements the consumer groups and the enviros and the labor groups and the family, farm and faith groups who opposed it in all three countries. That's when I first met Alejandro who you're gonna hear from in the second part of the show. We were all considered protectionists and backwards. And and in fact, 25 years of NAFTA and it proved we were right. A million US jobs are officially certified by the government under a program that's quite narrow What it even includes as being offshored under NAFTA two million Campesino farmers from Mexico displaced off their lands because NAFTA, you know, corporate power grab guaranteed new rights for foreigners to own Mexican farmland, basically undoing the land reforms of the Mexican Revolution. And $400 million are paid out to corporations doing those investor attacks over toxic spans and timber policies and energy policies and water policies that were pro-people and pro planet. And in the course of all of that with no real union rights in Mexico, all the, that investment came in, but real wages in Mexico and manufacturing are now 40% lower than in China. They're lower than they were in real terms, inflation controlled them before NAFTA. So the corporations got what they wanted and we all got the shaft.
1: Well, that's and a really that basically interesting- is the
3: quick and dirty summary of what was in there and what happened.
1: That's a really interesting thing. I didn't know that 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 wages are actually lower now than they were before, because the um, the the kind of liberal free trade argument is that, yeah, sure, you know, Mexican workers are going to accept less, but this is actually going to these free trade agreements, they may hurt American workers, but they're actually going to make Mexican workers, uh, workers that are in these um, countries that are less wealthy than the United States, it's going to make them better off, ultimately and and what you're saying is that that's actually not happened.
3: Well, not not only ha, have Mexican wages actually stayed lower. So the promises that the Mexican people heard from their own government, which I'm sure Alejandro will speak more about, those promises didn't come to fruition either. In fact, a hell of a lot of damage happened. But in addition, at this point, even like the the granddaddy of, of free trade economic theory, the guy who You know is sort of the genius of this is um a guy named professor samuelson recently passed away and his last paper before he he passed basically showed that even the consumer benefit side in the u.s doesn't work mathematically anymore so professor paul samuelson famous paper basically found mathematically that the savings that consumers get in the u.s on cheaper imports no longer is a bigger number than the loss in wages and standard of living that workers get in having jobs offshore. So even you know, the theory of free trade is the consumer wins, then the workers who lose get compensated. The problem is if the majority is the loser, you don't have a minority to compensate with the winners. <laughs> so right. that, that mathematically on both ends has basically been a big loser.
1: So what did the USMCA change about NAFTA?
3: So there is the good, the bad, and the not done. The good news is those investor rights got largely whacked, totally whacked with Canada, limited greatly with Mexico. So those attacks um, in the corporate tribunals are not gonna, are largely gonna be a thing of the past. The outsourcing incentives in the investor section also got largely removed there were some really outrageous environmental rules like the Canadians you're gonna speak with, the Canadian in the second section, the Canadians were very upset about rules that forced the government to continue exporting natural resources if, if exports were ever started. So if you wanted to save water, and if you wanted to not have tar sands oils being exported, once you started, you couldn't stop the spigot, it was called proportionality. And so the mandatory exports of natural resources language was taken out. I think Eric will speak more to this, but some significantly improved labor standards and enforcement were added that um, could make a difference if it's enforced. The environmental standards were improved a little, but not, you know, a lot of stuff got left out. And there is no special enforcement gains there. On the job side, what are called the rules of origin were tightened up. So the way NAFTA was originally written, products could be from outside of NAFTA outside of the Canada, US, Mexico group and could still get the NAFTA benefits, like they could be mainly a value from China and they could get in. And you know, if you wanna have higher labor and environmental standards, you don't want leakage like that because then the companies that do the right thing end up having to compete with goods made in China or someplace else, not under those rules. So the rules of origin getting fixed were important. And there were some other things like a sunset review that were half done. The bad news is they added some additional new bad stuff, including some new rights for the big tech giants. It's a chapter called Digital Trade. It's another of those branding stunts. It's not about trade. It limits regulation for privacy, for the big platform's liability, like when Amazon or someone sells you something, they say you can't sue them if it burns down your house or hurts you because they they consider it a free speech protection. So some of those crazy big tech and monopoly rules related to that ended up getting added. And there are the things that didn't get fixed. So there are really bad NAFTA rules on agriculture that are the reason that so many people in Mexico got displaced. They're really bad NAFTA rules on food safety and product standards. And none of that stuff got fixed. And a lot of that bad stuff is also in the WTO. So some of it you can't even fix just in NAFTA because unfortunately it's also in the global agreement. So if you fixed it in NAFTA, like a lot of folks said, why didn't we oppose the USMCA? Because we didn't, because basically we didn't support it. We didn't oppose it. We just laid out the the pros and cons. But objectively, clearly it was a much better agreement than NAFTA and was gonna stop some of the ongoing damage. And if it gets enforced right, it could really help improve labor rights in Mexico and At the same time, we couldn't support it because it had some new bad stuff. (laughs) And some of it you can't fix unless you fix WTO as well as NAFTA. But it sure as hell was a step in the right direction. And I see it as like the, the new floor from which we need to advocate. So that bad stuff that came out can never be in another agreement. And then we need to build on the good stuff. And the garbage that's still in there still needs to be taken out
1: right well eric uh she, you know she mentioned uh that about the labor protections in mexico and 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 that's a good place to loop you in on because that that was one of the things that i remember um being trumpeted about was that, that you know this adds some kind of labor protections in mexico and and you mentioned there's been an, an independent review uh after the usmca was passed um i i didn't get to dig into it as, as much as i would like but uh you know what what were specifically those labor protections and and to to what extent have they been enforced so far?
4: Good question. Um, so th- thanks for that. And uh, uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, the, a co- I think a couple um, pretty significant things happened uh, on labor under USMCA. Um, the first is that the agreement required Mexico to engage or, or pass a very deep. Fundamental reform of its labor laws, um, and we we saw that as first of all, just to, just pause for a minute here. Very often with trade deals, and Lori will Lori knows this, um, you know, promises are made um, on labor and the environment, but um, governments are allowed to say, well, we'll do that, but let's sign the deal now, um, and we we'll, we'll, we promise we'll we'll clean up this labor law, or that that environmental law, we'll do that down the line. Let's just let's sign the deal. Um, what I think USMTA got right on with regard to Mexican labor law reform is Mexico had to pass the reforms, uh, before the agreement was signed. Um, so that, and that happened, um, they passed some pretty significant labor law reforms that, um, if, as Lori pointed out, if they are implemented and enforced, um, will allow Mexican workers to organize independent trade unions uh, that are actually capable of bargaining with employers. All these these multinational companies have moved to Mexico um, and uh, to to set up factories. Um, If they actually had to bargain with independent trade unions, uh, wages and standards we know would go up in Mexico. That would be good for U.S. workers, because it would close that wage gap that we were talking about, right? It would also be good for Mexican workers, obviously, because they would have more. Their their salaries would go up, and they would be able to, frankly, be good for the domestic economy of Mexico. They would be able to buy more things, stimulate the economy domestically. Um, so that's the first thing is that this Mexico had to overhaul its labor law, uh, uh, its labor laws, also builds some new institutions, not just the laws, but they they also agreed to create a whole bunch of new labor courts um, to enforce these laws. Um, they had a lot of problems with their their enforcement system, uh, so there were you know promises that they that they made and they had to do on the front end. Um, of course, now when it comes to implementation and monitoring enforcement, USMCA um, also gave us a bunch of stuff on the on the back end to. that we can use to make sure that Mexico, uh, not just Mexico, not just government Mexico, but also the employers in Mexico, all these multinationals and companies in Mexico who are setting up shop and and using it as an export platform, that they actually have to follow the new labor law as well. Um, So we have, I think, a much stronger set of rules, a a much stronger enforcement, monitoring enforcement mechanism than we had under NAFTA. Um,
1: and that is like, it's like night and day. I mean, that's clear. Well, uh, can you talk to us some more about um, uh, some more about that report, that the independent review of the of the results of the USMCA? Is, is there um, like, you know, you mentioned that there are there are more. um there, there are more mechanisms for enforcement, uh, you know, to the extent that it's even night and day. Have we seen, like, is it is it too early at this point to, to really kind of gauge the results, or have we actually seen, like, evidence of these new labor protections being enforced?
4: So I think there's a, so it's early, let's just put it that way. It's, it's, it's too early to know, to, to declare you know, uh, whether USMCA, the labor reforms and, and standards, whether they're going to be successful in the long term, right? We're talking about what needs to happen in Mexico. Just to step back for a second, the type of labor law reform we're talking about and the industrial relations changes are fundamental. These are changes that will have to take place over, we're talking about measuring in years, a decade. I mean, we are talking about really trying to change the, the way that uh, workers and employers uh, relate to each other in Mexico. So these are long-term changes, but uh, this first report of the Independent Mexico Labor Expert Board um, was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, it had, in a nutshell, what it, what it said was, Mexico, the government of Mexico has uh, begun to deliver on these new institutions uh, that have promised the new labor courts and the um, the federal uh, arbitration conciliation center and, you know, this new machinery that they promised to build. They're starting to deliver on that. They're a little behind because of COVID. Hmm. Um, And Mexico is Alejandro. They, they have a big problem with COVID. Like a lot of us do, like we do in the U.S. But Mexico has been hit hard. Um, So they've been a little slow in rolling out the new machinery, the new machinery, the new courts. I would say that the, the, Unfortunately, where we haven't seen a lot of progress is we, we there's a number of existing cases that we've been following for, for years where uh, employers in Mexico have denied workers their rights to organize in, in, a, in a number of different facilities. Um, unfortunately, we haven't seen a lot of change on the ground yet um, in, in these factories. Um, and now we do have tools to to uh, to try to encourage Mexico um, on the enforcement end to 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 you know implement these reforms and 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 deal with factory level issues um, and we we intend to use those tools I would say it's a it's a you know we can talk more about that but it's it's a, um, that that'll, that'll definitely come in time.
1: I'm, I'm interested in, in why, uh, you know. Lori mentioned that they actually didn't endorse uh, the USMCA. They laid out the pros and the cons, but the AFL CIO actually did endorse uh, what I, I'm. I, what was it that pushed the AFL-CIO National Federation to endorse it? And then, you know, after after you say that, I think probably t- to wrap up this half, um, I'd be interested in, in, what, uh, in, in what kind of trade deal it would take for Global Trade Watch to endorse. Uh, I'd be interested in like, what is, you know, if Lori gets to write the next trade deal, what does it look like? So Eric, what was it that pushed the AFL-CIO over the edge and said, we want this to happen?
4: First of all, I want to say I would love Lori Wallach to write the next big trade show. <laughs> Can we just get that out there right now for all your listeners? Uh, but no, I mean, seriously, uh, I think there were, you know, three things that I would point to that that got us to, to yes. Um, the first thing is you got to remember, we were not, uh, were not talking about a country, Mexico and Canada, with which we had no trade agreement. We already had a trade agreement as Laurie talked about, NAFTA. It's terrible. Okay, So the baseline was really terrible for workers. um, When we saw the opportunity to fundamentally uh, rewrite Mexican labor law, um, have these real monitoring and enforcement mechanisms, both with regard to the government and individual employers in Mexico, and I think when we saw that some of these corporate giveaways that Lori was talking about, um, you know, these uh, extended pharmaceutical uh, patents and um, and the, in, this investment state dispute settlement, when that stuff was also taken out, um, we saw a deal that we could endorse, um, you know, to improve the trade framework in North America. Because remember, we're starting from NAFTA, and that's like being way in the basement. Um, <laughs> And I think USMCA has got us back up to the, to the ground floor. Um, And that's improvement. um, It's not perfect. It is, you know, it is far from perfect, but it is now the new floor for us. Any, any trade deal that U S negotiates now, has gotta be at least as good as what we got uh, on labor with USMCA.
1: So then Lori, what uh, you know, somebody gives you a magic wand, gives you the pen, and then you write the next trade deal. What, do, what does that look like? What would it take for, well, maybe that's two things. What would it take for Global Trade Watch to endorse a deal? And then what does like the perfect trade deal look like?
3: I just want to underscore what Eric said, which is, you know, the reason we didn't oppose this and the reason one of the reasons they support it and the reason most Democrats, almost all the Democrats voted for it is, the NAFTA was like at the 12th ring of hell the changes brought the agreement like up to the crust. So our butts are still feeling the heat. There's a lot more to do, but we're not, you know, in eternal damnation state. And so when I think about what it is that, you know, we would do next is you would build on that floor. So you wouldn't leave the little piece of investor state dispute settlement in there. You would whack the whole thing. And you wouldn't add new powers for corporations like the stuff for the digital companies, you take the rest of the IP protections for pharma that we, you know, we got it back to NAFTA and a little bit better than NAFTA. When Trump originally negotiated, he had all kinds of new giveaways. And so, you know, but there's still, it still isn't the agreement that helps make sure that technology is spread so people can get affordable medicines. You would get rid of all of the stuff that is basically regulatory handcuffs. In a trade agreement, the standard should be national treatment. You treat the stuff that you make or that you offer as a service the same as the foreign stuff. And the the consumers, the workers, we decide in our domestic entities what is that standard. So if a country decides they don't want GMOs, the eaters decide that we shouldn't have to fight them to have a right to export the stuff they don't want. And so that standard of what's really about trade, and then you put in the missing stuff. So what's missing? There are international labor standards through the ILO, Right now, they don't have the status relative to the trade agreements except in NAFTA now and the new revised NAFTA. We still call it revised NAFTA because we don't think it's good enough to get a totally different name. But in the revised NAFTA, you would basically build up so that, all right, we've got these international standards. We're not telling other countries do it our way or else. They signed on as a sovereign and in, in Forcing those rules needs to be given precedence over just the commerce, same thing with the multilateral environmental agreements. So there are standards out there, the United Nations human rights standards, the World Health Organization has a whole set of agreements around tobacco and other stuff. So there is this whole people law out there internationally that's not enforced, and that needs to become the floor of decency. That's a condition so that we have like international law, like we have national law, the states can go better. But the states can't go below the national standard for OSHA protections, for wages, for environmental standards. But there's nothing like that for the global economy. But you have multinationals that can then play countries off each other. So you take out the stuff that shouldn't be there. You put in the stuff that's missing. And then you dose the whole thing in a lot more democracy and transparency. And really, it's about de-corporatizing, de-rigging the the agreements as is, and then putting in the human stuff that's been missing all along. And there are two things, there's some people too for details. Jared Bernstein, who's now on the Council of Economic Advisors, and I wrote a paper called uh, Progressive Rules for the Global Economy. So if you just look up Bernstein and Wallach and trade, it'll pop up. And then there's another really cool thing recently, just written last two months ago, the Modern Agreement of Amity and Commerce. And it's a woman who's actually originally Canadian, Beth Baltzan, B-A-L-T-Z-A-N, who is someone who worked at the Trade Representative's Office. So she was on the inside in the belly of the beast. And she came to the conclusion that existing trade rules did not suit most people. And she wrote a model trade agreement that shows, and I would, that is an agreement public citizen would support. It shows how you could get the benefits of trade without the baggage. And she also deals with the issues like currency manipulation and monopoly. Because corporate globalization and monopoly go hand in hand. So that's a, I'd vote for that.
1: Laurie, thanks so much. That, that was great. I agree with Eric. We should let you write the, new, uh, write the next trade deal. Uh, so with that, we're going to go to break and go into the second half. We're going to keep Eric on from the AFL-CIO. We're going to be talking to Alejandro from Mexico and Rick from Canada uh, to dig in some more to the USMCA. Uh, folks, we will be right back with the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly live stream.
0: South of the border, in the loving tongue, they used to sing corridos by the Rio Grande. And every singer told of his adventures bold, back in the times when Pancho Villa and Zapata rolled. South of the border, how the times have changed. Maquiladora plants along the Rio Grande, and the song they sing is just a money thing that will leave you in the morning without anything your lover is a green girl from a northern land he will promise you like he promised me all the border like the pistol shines the flowers come to bloom beside the Rio Grande. They find a job that pays below the living wage. They'll wither in the sun before they come of age. South of
2: the border. That song Maquiladoras was sung by Anne Feeney, and of course Maquiladoras are the factories uh, across the border in Mexico. It was sung by Ann Feeney and written by Larry Penn. It previews our next segment. Ann Feeney died a week ago of COVID-related pneumonia. She was a friend to me and to union activists everywhere. One of her best-known songs was, Have You Been to Jail for Justice? Ann had. She never missed a picket line if she could help it. She sang for the strikers and when she traveled to her next concert, she'd raise money for them. She was a a kind of traveling musical Mother Jones. Utah Phillips called her the greatest labor singer of our times. We will all miss her. I'm Judy Ansel, and I introduced myself. Uh, My show is the Heartland Labor Forum in Kansas City. You can find us at kkfi.org. I'm also a labor educator, and I have been an international trade act- activist since NAFTA was passed in 1993. I took my first trip to the border in 1994, and met maquila workers, and joined an organization that would help uh, organize maquila workers. It was a U.S.-Canada-Mexico organization called the Coalition for Justice in Maquila Doors was founded by the AFL-CIO as a matter of fact. One of the things I learned as I learned about the conditions was that NAFTA made uh, Mexico safe for multinational corporations to invest. That was its prime purpose. And the other thing I learned was that only international labor solidarity was going to be able to raise the standards for all of us in North America. So in this program, I wanted to talk about international labor solidarity and talk about how our th- labor movements and progressive people from our three countries can benefit from the USMCA if, it, if we can, and how we can proceed to build that solidarity in the future. Our guests are Rick Arnold, who's been fighting free trade longer than I have, I think. He retired as Executive Director of Common Frontiers, a national coalition of labor, faith, and social justice organizations focused on the Americas. They're dedicated to the defense of human labor and land rights, as well as environmental justice, strong public services, and support for accountable, transparent, and democratic governments Governments throughout the Americas. Rick was a Canadian representative to the Hemispheric Social Alliance, participated in meetings on the USMCA in Mexico City, and is a member of the Council of Canadians. He joins us from Northumberland County, Ontario. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you, Judy. And I met Alejandro Villamar during struggles to support maquila workers in the 1990s. He was a founding member of the Mexican Action Network on Free Trade, Um, and although he's now retired as a researcher, trade union leader, and advisor on related issues. Both Alejandro and Rick are activists searching for alternative policies to neoliberalism. Alejandro joins us from Mexico City. And welcome, Alejandro.
5: Thank you, Judy. I'm glad to be here.
2: Well, it's great to have you. Um, Can each of you Give us a brief overview of the benefits or losses that resulted in your countries from NAFTA, and what unions wanted to get fixed in the renegotiation. I'm going to start with you, Rick.
6: Sure, Judy. Uh, let me let me take uh, let, let me take us all back for a moment uh, to the early '90s, uh, where the uh, current or the previous NAFTA was being negotiated. Uh, the Prime Minister of Canada at that time, Brian Mulroney, talking to particularly uh, Canadian the Canadian workforce, promised, and I think this is probably an echo of what was happening in Mexico too. He promised jobs, 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 full-time, well-paying jobs will increase after we sign this agreement. That was his uh, mantra. So what actually happened in the sub- subsequent years? Well, between 94 and, let's say, 2000, the job numbers didn't vary greatly. They sort of stagnated. But uh, as of the year 2000, between 2000 and 2017, uh, Canada lost 540,000 manufacturing jobs. You have to multiply this by a factor of at least 10 if you understand what it would mean in the U.S. context. Canada's GDP, gross domestic product, grew at a slower pace in the 25 years after the first NAFTA than in the 25 years before NAFTA. According to UNIFOR, which is uh, our, uh, the union that represents the car workers, the auto workers in Canada, 9 out of 11 plants that were built in Mexico during NAFTA 1, uh, were, were, 9 out of 11 were built in Mexico. So uh, what we have seen, and when you look behind the statistics, we've we're seen in Canada over the last 25 years, the hollowing out of full-time unionized employment. And it's been shifting quite quickly over the last number of years to part-time poorly paid precarious jobs. That's the scenario that we face as we now, uh, as of July 1st, uh, with the ratification of what we're calling I guess the uh, NAFTA 2.0, we tend to call it here. Uh, that's what we're facing now as that starts to uh, go into uh, implementation.
2: Sure sounds like the neoliberal model for how to screw labor. Uh, that was a good, that was a good uh, uh, summary, thank you. Alejandro, how about Mexico?
5: Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for the invitation. Well, I um, would like to say that the GEOS NAFTA, it mainly uh, favored the interest of large corporation investors and armed workers, small producers, and passants. USMCA continued the same model in general. Uh, However, some very important advances must be recognized for the interests of workers, the environment, and the elimination of the intention to take over the Mexican energy sector. Under uh, the USMCA, there are advances in the regional content of some products that will uh, strengthen greater regional trade integration. A fundamental place occupies, uh, as you know the automotive and auto parts sectors. But the declaration of regional content is contrary to the political inertia summarized in the the phrase of by America, instead of by North America. It is a a good clear example uh, of the gap between the rhetoric about the free trade, about the benefits of the, this kind of free trade, and the reality. The question uh, I would like to be, before to, um, to talk about the, some of the advances is uh, that the, the question is not only the rules in the documents or the um, agreements, the, the question also, is what is the national policy to accomplish or even avoid the rules of this in in the when you apply it in the national uh, territory, in the concrete uh, um, actions? Uh, for the reason, I think that we uh, we buy the myth of free trade. Um, Uh, believe it, that the the rules are the unique and more important things and not the concrete policy to implement uh, different rules. Wow. um, Two contents advances uh, in the UNCA uh, are Chapter 23, Labour, and Chapter 24, Environmental which uh, surprised the previous uh, rhetoric of NAFTA under the name of the parallel agreements. Uh, From a point of view, chapter uh, three with uh, the three uh, axes of labor, justice, union, democracy and collective bargain is a great advance because uh, it contained the demand that independent Mexican uh, trade unions fought for more than five uh, decades, and we emphasize that it is also uh, being the product of binational cooperation between democratic e- trade unions in Mexico and United States, and solidarity also from the Canadian trade unions. Uh, then this advance is not co- a concession from the business parties of, uh, of the three countries? Huh? It is very important question for us. In the case of uh, Mexico, this labor chapter helped to improve the new labor law in May 1918. Uh, and with a new democratic electoral government, the implementation of institutional changes and the condition to facilitate the true participation of workers began. But to understand the problem of its implementation and compliance, no one should forget or ignore that we are facing a situation in Mexico a, of a very strong inertial resistance from the old institutions the lack of training of officials, business resistance, and corrupt union leaders benefited by the old war rules as well as the repression and low organization level of the workers who want uh, to change. Um, uh, let, me,
2: let me interrupt you, Alejandro. So um, I, I don't. we don't have a whole lot of time, but I, I'd like to know, So your president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO, he's called, is he really in favor of the labor law reform? Is he going to use his political capital in order to overcome the resistance of all these forces you're talking about? Or is is he just going to let this thing drag on and on? What do you think?
5: I'm total convinced, it's strong convinced that the uh, AMLO, it's, it's López Obrador, uh, uh, not only believe, uh, not only believe now, and uh, he have an, a background of, of support these kind of fights, but uh, now it, it, uh, are very good uh, government uh, well willing, to transform this situation for the reason we're talking about the four transformation or four T, the four transformation in Mexico. uh, But the question is uh, the power is not only the government, the true power are the real factors. It it is The, the business, the investors and the leaders then it's not to it's not no, know the governmental power. It looks like also has in U.S. Biden is the president or Trump was the president, but the power was not in the White House. Please, uh, uh, we need to overcome this kind of myth. Uh, the, the truly power are in other parts, in other actors then the question, the political uh, challenge is how to overcome these resistance, how to increase the participation of the workers to take part in this transformation.
2: Oh, okay, let me interrupt you there because I wanna get back to that later on and we could uh, talk about what the workers in Matamoros have have been doing because I think that's one one reason. But I wanna ask Rick, Rick, what what did labor in Canada get from the USMCA? And um, what didn't it get that you think it should have?
6: Well, um, what it did get, and I guess it's in concert with what uh, labor in the US was hoping for, uh, was uh, uh, a chapter which now uh will push, I guess, labor reform in Mexico. Um, It's an odd situation, I have to tell you though, uh, because, and I don't know if you are aware of this, uh, besides the rapid response uh, ability of the United States and Mexico around the new labor laws and uh, the attempt to make sure that everything stays on course for those changes to be made, uh, there is a parallel one in a parallel chapter in the NAFTA 2.0 for Canada and Mexico. And what Canada is doing is it's abdicating its responsibility and it's allowing the US uh, labor leaders and others to go ahead hoping that they will be able to wring significant concessions out of the Mexican uh, government. And uh, oddly enough, Canada had a little bit of money to put into the uh, Canada-Mexico portion of the negotiations around the Mexican labor law, and they have designated that money and they're giving it to U.S. organizations, not to Canadian unions. Uh, So it's a very odd thing, but I sense that what's happening is that the government is standing back, and perhaps some of our labor leaders are standing back and saying, the U.S. will deal with this. Uh, that's great. We don't have to worry about it.
2: Interesting. Okay. Well, you know, um, Mexican workers in in Matamoros um, looked at, I guess, both the labor law reform and the fact that AMLO increased their minimum wages by a significant amount. I mean, uh, keep in mind the fact that the uh, wages in in Mexico along the border, despite the great productivity of the maculadoras, uh, wages had been absolutely stagnant since uh, 1993, when when NAFTA was passed, but yet last year the uh, the wages of workers along the border were what was it doubled, Alejandro? I think, but but the workers are organizing. Can you talk about that and and what kind of a challenge this is bringing to push uh, the Mexican uh, government and the state governments? To actually implement the labor law reform, and can you talk about Susana Prieto Terrazas?
5: Wow, Uh, Susana Prieto Terrazas is the labor lawyer, which uh, played an incredible role during the successful strikes in the border, and uh, uh, he um, uh, she she came to. Um, uh, uh, she can to mobilize forty-eight uh, um, uh, companies and workers from the uh, forty-eight companies, and uh, to fight not only for the salaries and successfully obtain the um, increase of the wages, but also also for. First time in many decades to organize the first uh, free trade union in the border. It is a very very important, but at the resistance of the local government right wing and also the leaders, uh, as um, was, are uh, continue to be terrible, terrible against the workers, but also. Uh, even um, to the uh, Susana uh, uh, Prieto even uh, after the 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 big uh, um strike the uh, um the government uh, in 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 connection with the judges uh, even um uh, prohibited this um, labor lawyer to live and to work into the into the city. And was in the Yale has, uh, has very good songs <laughs> described also uh, and now uh, it's prohibited for her to, to come into the city. It is the the violation of all laws, all international agreements. This is the concrete resistance of the big companies because our complicity between the uh, political power, but also the the, the business uh, owners. Right, okay,
2: so let me, me, uh, we only have five minutes left. And I I also wanna bring Eric back into the conversation. Um, and uh, because now we've got a labor representative from the US and we've got the two of you from Mexico and Canada. How can international solidarity push this thing and make this thing work so that we get increased rights for all of us in in North America? I don't know who wants to go first. How about, how about you, Rick? Because I think, Rick, you're one of these visionaries. <laughs>
6: Well, thank you, thank you, Judy. I, I, hope, I hope that's true. Anyway, uh, listen, uh, all I would have to say, and, and uh, Alejandro, if he wants, can, can go into more, more depth on this, is that there are some models out there. And one of the models is the Hemispheric Social Alliance. That model, uh, which uh, was uh, created, but not only in North America, but for all of the Americas, uh, was created with labor as one of the key components Labour leaders is key to that, but it also had many other sectors of society involved. And it was a joint effort, and it was a um, self-monitored, self-propelled effort by various countries. And it was through that sort of coalition that over a three to four year period, uh, they all came together. All of us from different countries came together and were able to stop the FTAA. Uh, in its tracks uh, in Argentina. And so I would suggest that one of the models we should look for uh, in terms of labor solidarity in uh, the three countries of North America is one they have to be able to talk to each other they have to be able to see each other COVID-19 is not helping that at the moment too much, but also the need to have the backing of significant other sectors of society with with labor and other sectors pulling together and with more consequential uh, intervention in the economy by the governments, which is what NAFTA tr- has tried to stop in uh, traditionally, uh, I think that's, uh, that's going to be one of the way forwards.
2: Okay. Well, thanks. We've got like two minutes left. So I'm going to give one minute to Eric and then you get the last minute,
5: Alejandro. <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, first of all, uh, excuse me for my bad English. Well, but I think that the other concrete aspect is in this moment the, um, to understood what is the concrete situation in, in Mexico to implement and comply with the uh, compromises from the chapter 23. This, this is an international solid, solidarity matter. It is not only US or Canada or Mexico. We need to join efforts to understand. Even if we, uh, it's in a fundamental condition to advance in the monitoring, if if uh, we use uh, erroneous standards from other countries to apply to Mexican concrete situation, uh, it will be to conclude with a very uh, um, erroneous uh, conclusions or recommendations and so on, which is don't help the, the Mexican uh, fight for free trade unions or the justice uh, um, in labor. I, I think that this is a, a good question. Uh, and we wish uh, that it's very important to stretch the cooperation. For the benefits of the three countries.
2: Okay, thanks. Eric, you got 30 seconds.
4: Great. So what what we're going to do is work with our Canadian uh, union and NGO partners and our Mexican union NGO partners. We're going to document every single case where a corporation is not living up to new labor law in Mexico. We're going to file complaints and we're going to try to stand up those independent trade unions in Mexico. That's how we get, that's how we change labor conditions there. Thanks.
2: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Rick Arnold, Eric Gottwald, and Alejandro Villamar. And thanks to my co-host, Jacob Morrison. Anybody who wants to hang out afterwards, please stay on. We're going to have a party.
0: better Listen, my brother, because if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years, and they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they will until we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free, none of us are.